Hello and welcome to another episode of the Self Made Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Luke Lehman. Luke is one of the most interesting people in the industry, not just because of his outstanding and incredible knowledge, but also his personality and how he makes really complicated topics really, really accessible. In this episode, we break down um, a number of things in terms of meal plans and nutrition and how best to approach nutrition as yourself trying to get in shape or as a coach trying to get his clients in shape. Then we delve into the main part of this podcast where we talk about going from poor posture to high performance. We talk about some of the common issues that we see in the game of trying to improve people's mobility and stability, what things that people are doing wrong, and then we just sort of break down a number of dysfunctions and how you can get into a position where you move better, more freely, perform better, and how small things, just like your head position, wrist position, could affect how much output and force you can actually produce and how you could be leaving gains on the table by not addressing this stuff. We also go on to many, many, many tangents, talking about things like ADHD, travel, and a whole host of other topics. This guy generally is really, really interesting, and we are looking to do another episode, um, basically bigger, uncensored, and uncut, where we basically go into a, a big Joe Rogan-style episode. So if you really, really enjoy that episode, stay tuned for that. And if you want to hear more from Luke, please follow Luke at Luke Lehman. That's his meme account. And then at Muscle Nerds Health, which is his account for his business, as well as the Institute of Physical Culture, his gym in Australia. As always, if you enjoy the podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop a share on your socials, tagging me and Luke. And if you want to know any more about myself or anything else I've got planned for the podcast, please drop me a message. I don't buy it and I'm happy to help. I will leave you with myself and Luke Lehman. So you don't want to do the regular intro for this. So I'm going to throw the question at you. We just start speaking of offline. I recently had Rob McGeary on the podcast talking personal development and he was talking about the benefits of no fat. You said before we got into this, that you were pro-fab. Now, is there, is, is there a scientific reasoning behind this, or is this just really weird territory to start the episode off? No, no, this is fine. You know, it's like when I think personal development, I think about going to a seminar and learning how to speak better or learning how to read faster or be more organized. I don't understand where your penis comes into this equation. Like, you know what? I decided I wanted to be a better person. So I stopped touching my penis. Like what, what? I don't get that. So uh, I'm, I'm pro fap. I mean, I've, that's something I've always done. Even if I, you know, I'm married now, I still fat. So sometimes I fat three times a day, even when I'm getting plenty of sex, it's just, I think that's a common man thing to do. And uh, maybe a woman thing to do as well. I, I don't know. Cause I don't have a vagina. So I don't know if, I don't know how many times girls do that. So. Yeah, I mean, do you find like you know, have you have you done enough research on this yourself to realize there's their performance benefits from the times where you fat more and fat less, like strength ratios, like the amount of time no. the squat goes no. no, I mean, I have a, I have enough uh, enough uh, time on my hands looking at nutrition and exercise physiology and all that stuff. It's like I wonder what would happen if I stopped jacking off for thirty days. Hmm, maybe I get like 0.3 kilos on my bench. Yeah, not worth it. So. <laughs> so we're like we're, if, if, we, if you're going into sort of like the, the the personal development route and finding out rather than looking at who luke was because most people know who luke yeah. was, you know you've done this a thousand times going from who luke's becoming what's your go-to things for like personal development other than just studying a lot of nutrition stuff no no look that's a that's a good question i'll tell you my secret i read a lot of fantasy genre books 
I, I find that fantasy and sci-fi, the nerds and the geeks have this shit all sorted out. So I can always find something about leadership or honor and loyalty and, and all that stuff. And, and even like, um, you know, organization. If you read the books with an open mind, you'll see a lot of philosophy. Um, you'll see a lot of leadership quality stuff. For instance, Dune, if you've ever read Dune, tons of leadership value in that book. Um, if you've ever read one of my favorite sort of truth series, um, there's a lot of philosophy on there. A lot of uh, kind of anti-altruistic, take care of yourself before you take other take care of other people types of philosophy there, kind of like kind of like your pave your own way type of stuff. So that's the type of stuff that I look for. And you know, I've tried the other books, like, you know, I don't know if I can, you go to the self-development section and there's a bazillion ones by a bunch of losers who have never done anything themselves. And now they're trying to tell you how to do that shit. Um, and I find that they were just worthless and I have found everything I needed to in fiction. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I've, I've ne never been a, a, a big reader, something I feel like I, I should do because you see a lot of people going into there's a common trend of people that are successful in business or anything where they're, they're a lot of them reading fiction becomes an important part of like just you know improving you mentioned things about improving themselves as a person but also improving themselves as a storyteller and communication mm. skills and and things things like that from it I mean like you've often said like before turn this into a, a personal therapy session but the yeah. uh, about your um, ADHD do you find it's been a tough ride to get into reading, being able to focus on something like that? Because I've, I, you know, I'm in the, on the verge of going and finding out if I have onto ADHD, and I one of the things I've always struggled with is reading. So how have you gotten into that? Considering, you know, like the struggles that may have come from from having that diagnosis. You know, I think a lot of the issues with ADD. Well, there's some there's some inherent benefits having ADD. When you're passionate about something, you can get ridiculously hyper-focused. Bombs could be going off and you wouldn't even notice. So the, but there's some also negatives. You, you've got a, a lot of issues with impulse control. And uh, if I before I take my medication in the morning, I'm very manic. And my wife can tell when I haven't taken it. She's like, have you taken your meds? I'm like, no, not yet. Well, let's go do something fun. She's like, take your meds. I'm like, okay. And then two hours later, I'm at my computer like, okay, I've got focus. I can do this now. Cool. But I, I think... Um, if you, cause I mean, I got, I'm 43, right? So I've had 43 years to learn how to channel this. And so, um, a lot of it is being able to channel it into something you're passionate about and which happens to be my career path. So it's nothing for me to sit here and do computer work for 12 hours a day or grab a book and study for 12 hours because I'm, I can get so focused into it. The problem is I forget to eat. I forget to poop. I forget to pee. I forget to do everything else, but I will just get hard out into that subject. Um, so yeah, it's, it's never been a hard thing for me to do to focus on my studies. It's a hard thing for me to do to stay in my workflow. If someone derails me from that. So if I get distracted, it's a 45 minute kind of desk, uh, kind of pathway of getting back to whatever I was doing before. So that's the biggest thing is getting, getting, getting derailed from other, with other people. Do you, like, do you find, so I, I, I often find with the, you know, with, with my focus is that I can either be, as you say, it's like, you know, I could be up at 4am, I haven't looked away from my laptop for 16 hours and I've gotten tons of stuff done. Or I'll sit in front of the most, using program design as an example, the most basic GBC program, which I've written for 10 years and just feel this inability, like this, 
a wooden bridge with slats missing. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. like when you get distracted, it's difficult to come back into it. Like, do you have a sort of routine when it comes to your studies that allows you now to stay focused? Is there certain things you do to make sure you eliminate those distractions and can get into that zone? The, the biggest thing is stay away from people. <laughs> so so I, I don't leave my house. I just stay in my area. And Zoe never bothers me when I'm I'm kind of doing that stuff. But yeah, that's the thing. I, it's very difficult to have strategies like that because you literally are like, oh, there's a squirrel. Oh, well, I'll just go over here and do this. And then, you know, two hours later, you're like, oh, shit, I was supposed to finish that. And then it's like, oh, cool. I've got my Rubik's Cube here. I'm going to play with that a little bit. And then it's like two hours later. I'm like, oh, fuck, I haven't even gotten restarted on what I was supposed to. So a lot of it is just trying to stay um organized which is difficult for some of the add you need lists and then you lose your list so you have like 50 lists and then you have to try to automate it and make it metonymous by uh, by putting it in a computer and then you know there's all kinds of shit that goes wrong so a lot of it is just building a lot of habits to turn this into rituals so like when i get up for work i do the same shit every day um i, I sit in front of my computer and i bring up chronometer and i go through all of my clients and i look at what they've averaged out over the last 7, 14, 21, 28 days of food. And I look at how their weights average. Um, and then I make notes on who I need to talk to and what I need to say to them. And then I go through my other coaches. So anybody that's kind of a problem client or having problems, I'll go through theirs and see how they're doing. Then I can email my coaches. Uh, second thing I do is go straight into True Coach and I look at any videos I need to look at and critique their technique. And then I see if there's any messages and then I'm done. Like I can three or four hours first thing in the morning, I'm done with all that. And then I can go into now I can study and research and write and do that type of thing. Do you feel like having like having energies helps you be a better, a better presenter? Like that little bit of like, because often going into like, we, we obviously, we obviously love it, but you've got, you know, people come in to get overwhelmed getting, you know, with the with the sort of like the deep material, and often you've been known in the industry for a lot of it being someone that makes all this stuff quite fun. When a lot of lot of educators can be making it very, it's this this rep scheme. It's very almost deadpan. Do you feel like hmm. that that's helped you have like come like oh out yeah out there personality? Yeah, and it, it does because it, it gives me a, a position where I can be myself and I can be a maniac. So it's funny because when I stand up and I present. Uh, there's some people that think, oh, he's, that's an act. Like he doesn't really act like that. I'm like, no, this is people who know me and talk to me outside of me speaking and lecturing. They go, no, that's how he talks. Like he cusses that much. And he says that much inappropriate shit. Like that's him. I don't put on any, any fronts, but that being said, I do always, when I get up to talk, I want it to be entertainment. I want it to feel like a performance. Like I want it, I want you to feel like you've come to a show. Um, and I think that's what's missing from a lot of guys. They just don't, they've got the knowledge, but they don't know how to turn it into something fun. Like you would get dressed up to and go have dinner and then hear this person speak. So that if you just come in and hear this sciencey shit and it's super dry, like go to college for that because that's really easy. But if they come into me, I want to make sure that they're getting the most uh, that they can get out of it, which is not just the information on how to apply it, but also having a good fucking time and also being highly offended. <laughs> yeah I, I i i think this you know maybe not to the same level but certainly this was the, my own experience with like train like training coaches in, in particular but even you know, training clients i i feel that the pros and cons of being like this is that i've managed to put my foot in my mouth a lot i've got myself in a lot of trouble especially where i used to work because you know free speech isn't common <laughs> um 
but like, see, just like that. But I also man- I've also <laughs> managed to, I've, I've got this thing where people, and I suppose one of you have the same thing, where people end up trusting you because you're willing just to speak your mind and a little bit of verbal diarrhea. You know when you're having a conversation with someone, they're genuine. And I, I find there's nothing worse in, you know, than having a conversation when you know you can just see the cogs turning. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to trust you with anything. Mm. You know, mm. do you feel that's helped sort of like the like because you've built a you know a very I would say cult following, although it's getting more mainstream by the day, but like you know, a, a cult following in the industry as being one of the guys to go to. Do you do feel oh, like that's yes. helped out a lot? Oh, let's not use that word cult. Uh let's see it. Let's leave cult and like I'm using it as a cult for a change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, let's just say we've built an interest in what we do. That 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 sounds better, right? Yeah. Um yeah, you know, I think I think people appreciate when you're genuine and they can they, it, people are attracted to other people who are genuine and, and aren't trying to hide things, right? And there's a lot of people in our industry that they do. They're very dogmatic in what they do, very myopic. Uh, they're very uh, black and white, you know, do this, not that, but that's not how this stuff works. And there's not enough people that are standing up there that will you, you harness humility and, and be genuine. So, so if someone asks me something, I don't know, I'll just tell them, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but I'll try to find out for you. And if I can't, I'll find who can, and I'll send them your way. But there's a lot of guys who they want to be this pseudo expert and they'll just answer questions by pulling shit out of their ass. And then you hear this and you go, but that's not correct. That's not even close, but they're so convincing in the way they say it that everyone just follows. And then it gets repeated in the industry and it makes the industry a worse place. I think more people need to just be comfortable saying, look, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. That's outside of my scope of expertise, my scope of knowledge or whatever, but I do know a few guys who might know. Let me ask them and then let me get back to you. And yeah, I suppose those people are thinking that if they don't know the answer to something, they they're, they're not as much of an expert. They don't know the answer. And I think it probably hinders them because, like you saying, "I don't know, but I will find out." Now leads you down to meet someone, improve your network, or someone that could educate you in helping you have that answer. Like yeah. I know, like part of the, the reasons why I wanted to do this for so many years is is just almost being able to chat to really interesting people that are smarter than me in in, in their field. And it's that often like. Your own your own arrogance and pride will actually stop you growing because it's that mm. it's that ability to find like you know people like yourself and all the people I've had on this podcast that like have taught me so much through the years. This is not about me. You know, mm. I, you know I remember with uh, when I had Andrew Coates on, he was saying that you know talk about storytelling. He was like, if, if this was a Harry Potter movie, the coach's job is to be Dumbledore, not to be Harry, mm. not to be the star. Yeah. Of the show. I love, I absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's good. That's good, man. I'm going to have to talk to him about that because he needs to explain that to me more because that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk like, and it's, it's, it, it, it was a really interesting conversation because every story has to go back to the, the fiction literature. Mm. Every, every mm. story is that sort of same thing. There's, there's a guide, there's a hero and like, you know, and it, they all go through a very, very similar path. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting when you draw parallels to this again, someone else is well read. Yeah. This is, my wake up call to start reading more fiction. I think this episode. In the first I mean, I think, I mean, you, you, you've heard me say this in like program design and foundations and stuff. You have to look at this. If we go back to storytelling, you know, you're hired by the client to help them write a book. Like, so it, essentially you're the editor, 
right? So you're going to lay out the outline of how this needs to go. We need a table of contents. Then we're going to need a chapter one that opens and everything. And then we also need, we need to go look at the end. So how do you write a proper, proper program? Well, you have to look at the end and work your way back to where you're beginning. So it's a lot like that. But ultimately, the, the client has to actually write the book. They have to actually put the words on the paper. And it's your job to just edit things and correct things and also to guide them towards that in conclusion. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good way, good way of saying it, like help them buy a book, because I think there's a lot of going back to dogmatic things. When people look at sort of programs on with people, it's, it's almost very much a, you know, it's it's do this, do this. And like they have this idea in their head of where they want to be. And if a client doesn't necessarily agree to that, you've I, I, I always reference you with it um, where people say, like, I, I want to lose a couple of pounds and you just like throw them in the squat rack and make them get on stage. You know, it's, yeah. you know, like the, yeah. the more I, the years I have in this, the more conversation in terms of my clients becomes so much more important. It's like, I'm going to let you dictate this story and I'll just, I'll just go yeah. and you need my help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing, like a client comes to you and, and you've heard me say this before when I first started out, like, first started out and a girl walks in she's like oh i just want to lose like you know five pounds and i'm looking at her like okay six months i'll have you on stage bikini show and then it's going to be ifbb we'll do nationals and we're going to go pro like that was going on in my head and that's not what they were asking me for they only wanted to legit lose five pounds and that's all that they cared about and i that was back in the day when i'd be like well let me explain to you the difference between uh, losing weight and losing fat. And I was just this pompous little shit. Like most guys, when they first come into the training thing before, before they have enough experience to understand that you're saying the wrong things and you've got your, you're focusing on the wrong things and you're, you and your client aren't matching up with what they're actually asking you to do. And, um, you know, you can only get that with experience. You can't read about that in a book. You can hear someone say it, but ultimately, you have to basically go through a dozen clients and be like, okay, why do I keep losing clients? Maybe I'm not listening to them. Maybe I'm telling them too much of where they want to go instead of you know, finding out actually where they want to go. Super common thing for uh, coaches to do. It's a huge mistake as well. But we've all done it. You know, same with the guys, you know? Yeah. And I, I also think as well, like you, you might find some of these people not that you would have necessarily gone and wanted the goals you set for them initially, but it was that hardwire approach. And a lot of that, they're, they're often mm-hmm. guarded by um, insecurities, not caught in the gym, you know, like not sure what they can achieve. And you might find if you like that person who, you know, they go to another coach that listens to them, that asks questions, you know, that finds out a little bit more about them and then just thinks, okay, let's lose that first five pounds. They may be 20 pounds down in six months. They may be a person who goes, sure, maybe I could do like a stage show. Like I, I remember when I first started, I was very dogmatic about exercise classes. It's like, you know, what the fuck are you doing going to Zumba? Zumba's a sack of shit. Like, you know, you should yeah. be doing hardcore weight training. I'm just like, this guy's like 140 kilos with bad knees. I'm just like, come on, he maybe just wants to dance. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. I can't remember doing aqua aerobics. Have you ever done aqua aerobics? No. Is that where you flipping around on silks and shit? No, no, that no, that's aerial yoga. I've not done that. Yeah. But yeah, aquaerobics is the is when you're in the swimming pool doing swimming. Oh, yeah. Aqua, aqua, yeah. water. Aqua. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, like that that one moment might change my thought about exercise classes in my career. Yeah. Those old deers just I, they blew me out of the water doing yeah. this aerobic stuff. And I was like, I'm not judging any class ever again. 
Yeah. Well, I, look, I mean, you know, you know, my, you know, my background, you know, who, you know, I've had many mentors, but one of my main mentors, massively anti-aerobic, anti-carb, anti all this stuff. And, and that, that shaped me initially until, um, you know, until later when I kind of broke out of that and started getting into the, you know, the textbooks and getting other mentors and figuring out, hmm, maybe we need some aerobics. Maybe we need to have carbs. Maybe we need to have this. Maybe they have that. And so <laughs> I had a similar experience to your, uh, your aquaerobic thing. So one of my really good friends teaches body combat. You know, the Les Mills, like they do like the Taibo shit. You know, and um, and I was like, I, I went to see her, and she we did a charity thing where I trained her for charity, and all of her clients got to come and watch and all that, and so I just completely bl- brutalized her. And after it, she goes, "Well, since you, since I did that with you, come in on Monday and do body combat with me." And I went, "Nah, man, I'm not gonna do body combat. Like, I'm not in that type of shape. Like, I'm super out of shape right now." She goes, "No, just come in." And I finally went, "All right, fuck it." So if Zoe will do it, I'll do it. So Zoe and I did it. And um, man, I think it was like a 45 minute class and I'm in the back of the class and I'm doing my punches and my elbows and my knees. I'm super into it. Like the first half of it. And I was like, fuck man, I'm starting to get winded shit. And I'm looking around and there's, there are girls who are seriously overweight. I mean, these girls are like 50, 60% body fat and they're just they're hammering it. They're just shua, shua, shua. I'm in the back. I'm fucking about to puke. And I'm I, at the time I was shredded as I was almost single digit body fat. And I thought I was in real good shape. And I'm looking around at all these other girls who are, don't look like they're in shape. They're in massively good shape. And I was in the back going, fuck. Okay. It's gotta be, it's 45 minutes. I look at the clock. It's been 15 minutes. I'm like, fuck, fuck. I'm never going to make it. And that, that was one of those things that changed my ideas about that. And I didn't even have solid ideas about no classes at that point. But at that point, I went, okay, maybe this is good for my clients. If they want to do this type of shit, I'll fuck it. I'm, I'm all for it. As long as we can balance it out with everything else in the program. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's looking at risk reward, I suppose, for these sort of things, right? Like, you know, if, if someone's coming into you with 20 years of knee pain and it's, you know, it's a big, you know, Les Mills body mm. burpee class, then maybe there's a different conversation we had than someone who... Yeah coming into the gym for the first time and like just they don't really like being there but maybe a bit of some of them might get them started you know and get them going in the right direction but you know on that same on that same token if you get the the super hardcore strength trainers strength coaches like like i used to be like non-wavering black and white bitch get your ass in the squat rack type of guy i mean it, some of those guys would go well you shouldn't do aerobics because or, or the aerobics classes because it's bad for your knees you got a bad knee but they'll put somebody with a fucking hernia, a, a bum knee, a peg leg, and a fucking scoliosis, and they'll make them squat 300 kilos, and they don't think there's anything wrong with that. So that's what I don't understand. It's like, you don't like that activity because of these things, but you'll let everybody squat, and maybe like, maybe 15% of your clients do even have the orthopedic profile to even do a deep squat. Yeah. So it just oh. blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's cherry picking stuff for... But what suits your narrative rather than what doesn't suit your narrative? Right? Um, yeah. So what's like, obviously you've mentioned, and, you know, we know about the cardio thing and things like this, but what's like, you know, is there any other big sort of like dogmatic sort of like beliefs that you've held in the industry that you've like had massively turned around in the last few years? Man, a lot. Not in the last few years, but but probably about 10 years ago, things started to change. And one of them was the low carb versus high carb thing. And, uh, you know, I was massively 
low carb, not, not keto, but, you know, modified low carb, that type of thing. Paleo-ish, but not really paleo. Cause I feel like that that's pretty silly. Um, I'm not dressing up like a caveman and getting my spear and running into the grocery store, like, like crawling through the floor at Tesco's coming up to the fucking beef section and spearing some fucking beef and then putting a, making a fire in the middle of the grocery store. Right. But the, the type of thing, right. Meat, veg, meat, veg. I was big into that. And I still, I still am for me, but I, then I got to where I'm like, okay, I need to be giving people what's good for them. And so for some people that might be high carb, low fat, some people that may be high fat, low carb. Um, so I had to change the way I looked at, at diet diet because I was so far into that one, um, one section of it. And, um, I realized that this stuff has to be basically prescribed for lack of a better word for the specific individual for their personal chemistry, but also what they can actually accomplish, you know, what they can actually be compliant on. So that nutrition was a big one for me. Yeah. hundred percent. But I still eat. Uh, very high protein, um, low to moderate carb and low to moderate fat. And I feel that's the best for me, but that's not for everybody. But I do find that that works really well for a lot of people. But I got people who eat 70% carbs, like 20% protein, 10% fat, and they just kill it, you know? Apologies for the child dying in the background there for during the end of that last little question. Um, <laughs> don't know what happened now there. Probably, probably was uh, realizing that she could actually eat carbs for the first time in you know in nine years. Probably. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I think I think that's an interesting one with like nutrition. Obviously, like we all know how well studied you are and like how you're you know learning more and more about what's optimal in terms of dieting for the individual and how to change certain things. Mm. Do you feel that your like your approach to nutrition has become? more flexible or less flexible as you started to learn more about what you do? It's, I feel like it's gotten more flexible as far as looking at a broad range of diets. It has gotten a bit less flexible with what I want my clients to do, at least initially, because after training as many people as I have, especially with nutritional coaching, there's a lot of times where people just don't need a flexible fucking approach. Most people, if you give them a flexible approach, They'll be too flexible. So I personally um, would rather give them a semi-rigid, semi-static template, at least in the first few weeks. Um, I prefer them to weigh and measure and track just to give them an idea of how many calories are actually food because they have no idea. The general population have such low nutritional literacy that they go, I don't want to track. I don't want to track. And this is even coaches too. We get all the coaches to track it. And we had a coach the other day who ate uh, pizza hut pizza. And he goes, there's no way that there's that many calories in that there's no, way. there's no, there's no way there's that much fat in carbs. We're like, dude, it's a fucking pizza hut pizza. It's like a deep dish pizza hut pizza. Yes. There's like 4,000 fucking calories in that. How are you a coach? And you don't know that. Like, I don't understand this, but they never know until they actually track things. So we get people to track and they're like, oh, I do it really good Monday through Friday. And then and then there's their booze on the weekend. Holy shit, 4,000 calories of booze. You're like, yeah. So, so the Reader's Digest version, it's become flexibly inflexible. So uh, the way I look at it is uh, I look at it from an area of those four levels of competence, right? So I've got subconscious incompetence. Conscious incompetence, conscious, or conscious uh, competence, and then subconscious competence. 
And I look at it as a, as this is going to sound horrible to anybody listens. If my, one of my clients is listening to this, I apologize. It's like training a dog. When you get a puppy, you give it a real fucking short leash and you got a prong collar on. And anytime it gets out of the way, you like, pow, and then, and you just fucking snap that prong collar and it gets the puppy back in line. So in the early stages, you kind of have to be like that with your clients because they just don't know any better. And then when they move to the next level, now you can take the prong collar off, but you get still got a pretty short leash. And now you could just kind of tug them and guide them. And then they get to the next level and you give them a little bit more leash, a little bit more leash. And then eventually you could take the leash off. But you have to train clients the same way you would train a puppy like that is that, you know, they um, will be the, the worst uh, what's the thing? They'll be their own worst enemies because they just don't have enough information or knowledge to make the right decisions. And that's our job to teach them how to do that and create structure. There's, there's so many, so many things I, I like and we've just said that. I am so glad you talked about the, the structure things mm. and meal plans. Um, because I suppose like coach, like talking about the coach is not tracking. It's almost, it's more in, probably more in denial. I always, when I look at tracking yeah. food dyes, now I go, right. Is there something I'm I'm very I'm aware whenever I start dieting and start tracking stuff of my my habits and the things I want to do, whether I do it or not. Because if I do it, I know my clients will do it. So like I yeah. would things, a couple of things I would use. So like I used to have these last time I was like these dairyly, light dairyly to um, blue cheese triangles, like 20 calories a pop. And it was just like a couple of them would just get me through a meal. And I wouldn't track it, it's 40 calories. Yeah. But it's what a client would do with a cookie. Oh, it's only small. Yeah. And it's 200, 300 calories four, five, six, seven times a week. Um, mm-hmm. uh, or I remember going to a restaurant once and really wanting the spare ribs. And it's my mini diets that always that always show me these things. My proper diets are my like, tunnel vision I'm in. But if it's like yeah. mini diet where I'm, I've got no, no goal for it, it doesn't really matter. This is where I was like, I look through my fitness pal, like scrolling up, like which spare ribs is the best? I will take an hour rib needed. It's not the 4,000 calorie, like, definitely that 400 calorie bottle. <laughs> like, no yeah. fucking way that that is the case. Yeah. And that, that's when I started to notice more things in my food clients' food diets. Like, what a couple of things I remember was 13 and a half cashew nuts. Like, who breaks oh, half? half? Yeah, yeah. Like, they're either okay. overly precise or they've just gone, that's about right. You know? Or, or they were like, yeah, one of them was a bit smaller than the others. So we just said uh, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, I don't know. Um, one ounces of steak. Like, one ounces of steak. Who the fuck eats a one ounce steak? I don't understand. To like living overseas now, like I don't understand why people don't use the fucking metric system. It drives me insane. When I when I go, okay, so if you're using my fitness pound, you know I use chronometer. When I go into chronometer and I see one of our clients has put pounds in for their weight, I, I immediately text them and I go, nah. Put your scale on kilograms. Get with the rest of the fucking planet. Stop using that. It, you gotta, here's the way I think of it too, especially it's the Americans, right? It's either Americans or sometimes the people in the UK. And you never know with the UK what you're going to get. You could get pounds. You could get kilograms. You could get fucking stone. You could get some other fucking medieval way of fucking counting somebody's weight or height, like hands and shit. And I used to get so mad because I had grip. I've just got this image of the Holy Grail. I'm just seeing an old way of saying yeah. I was a duck. <laughs> yeah. I get like I get guys from England and they'd send me this fucking uh yeah, today I weighed 10 stone and I'm like, 
fuck. Now I got to fucking convert to stone is 14 fence and then divide by 2.2 for kilograms. And it just, I'm like, can he just fucking put that in his kilograms, please? The one thing I like to do with the Americans, I, I make them, especially the women, flip their scale to kilograms because then when they gain weight, it's not so scary because if you gain one pound, they lose their fucking minds. But if they gain 400 grams, they're like, oh, it's just, that's grams. That's nothing. And I'm like, that's fucking, that's a fucking pound. 454 is a pound, but they don't know that. So it just, it tricks them. So you get away with that for a while. And then they start getting smart and they go, oh, hold on a minute. I've been gaining 454 grams a week. That's a pound. And I'm like, yeah. And you haven't freaked out and you look great. Fuck it. But that's not a bad idea. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Like, the, the, the meal the meal plan thing is interesting as well because it's almost it's it's almost become my catchphrase in the last year because it's almost been trendy for coaches to go meal plans don't teach you anything I'm like what what are you on like meal plans yeah. teach you structure it'll teach you like food prep it'll teach you habitual habits it'll teach you so much based off this and how a diet should actually look like when it's not big max yeah and like it's 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 mad that people think they go I I the dog collar is a great analogy I've always thought it's like learning a language it's like, mm. like if, if the meal plan is like you look you saying i want to learn spanish and i'm going here here's a rosetta stone tape the the macros approach to go just go to spain but they don't need to learn any words first no you'll pick it up speak to yeah. spanish and it, like just hope it makes up you know it never does yeah i mean look i mean when you learn a language it's like you learn all the conjugations and all that stuff and that is they give you the conjugations so you got to write down you know, your present past future all that stuff and that's how you learn it the way i see it is i don't like giving people static meal plans but i like working with my clients to create their own meal plan so what I typically will do is I'll write their macros and I'll write their calories. And then I'll, I'll go in a chronometer and I'll separate that out into say four or five um, sections for meals. And I go, okay, I want you to have around 500, 600 calories per meal to so much protein, carb, and fat. Now let's work on what proteins you'll eat every day and not get that bored. And if you do get bored, we can make an exchange list. But I, I make my clients write their own diet but I'm, I'm there helping them do it. So I'm like, okay, let's put in some starch. So you could have, you could have some starch, you could have fruit. Okay. So that could be rice, potato, sweet potato, whatever, or you could have grapes or bananas or whatever you want. And they're like, Oh, I think I want some potato. Cool. Put that in there. And then they see, they're like, Holy shit. That's a lot of carbs. I'm like, that's okay. We'll just use Christmas potatoes, which are 25% less carbs. Now you have more carbs or more volume. They're like, Oh, that's cool. So we, we do it as an educational thing and they create their own uh, meal plan. And what I find is they eat that pretty, you know, pretty consistently for three, four, five weeks. They start getting bored, but then they say, holy shit, I've lost five kilos in the last five weeks. I'm like, yeah, look at that. That's what happens when you follow a static plan that doesn't have any deviations. You've got accuracy, we've got precision and the weight goes the most successful clients that I see are the people who do that, who have structure and eat the same shit every day. And they might pop, you know, a little of this, a little of that out, but it's pretty much the same stuff every day. And we see, I'm telling you, we see one, at least one, most of them, one kilo a week of weight loss significantly and consistently over time. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that from the people I've seen. You see, it just eliminates margin for error because regardless whether, even if there's tracking error within it, if it's static, at least you know, like they're eating this. If you think it's 
1800 is actually 2000 it's still consistently a 2000 right and i i, yeah. I the, you often i find that the people that want decadence i always panic a little bit when i get a client asking me for recipes and it's not because i'm against yeah recipes. like and and it's two reasons. One, you don't want my recipes. They're boring as fuck. Um, and two, like, when you're looking at, like, often I find if, if someone's, like, resourceful and has this sort of detective mindset, I'll go and find the recipes themselves and go, hey, do these work yeah. in my meal plan? I go, cool, here's a few more. But it's more this, oh, I, I, I want everything to taste like Gordon Ramsay prepared it for me, especially yeah. on a Wednesday between meetings. And it's like, not every, not every meal needs to be a la carte. It's like, that's... That's what. That's why you look like you do right now because you've been eating Gordon, Gordon Ramsay shit all the time, and you don't want to look like Gordon Ramsay shit anymore. So let's get lean first, and then you go back to eating Gordon Ramsay shit every once in a while, not every meal. The thing is, like, this is what kills me: is people don't know how to cook. If you, if people knew how to cook, like I love my meals, and I eat the same shit every day. I wake up and I have four eggs almost every morning with a little bit of paprika, smoked paprika, and a little bit of Malden sea salt. Like, that's the best fucking salt ever, the Malden fucking crystal flakes. A little bit of cracked pepper. I have that and a, and a cappuccino. Done. Lunch, I have, I almost always have chicken thigh. I might have like 300, 250, 300 grams of chicken thigh. And I just, I take it. I can make it taste any way I want to. I can do lemon pepper. I can do you know, butter garlic. I can do hot and spicy. I just use a different, a different uh, blend, a different uh, rub every day. And that's easy. And then I might throw in a salad, chunky salad or something with some cucumber and tomato and red onion, and I'm done. Uh, if I need starch, I can add a little bit of rice. So that's super easy. But people want to make these goddamn fucking food networks four hour fucking meals where they're putting in, you know, fucking truffle, fucking truffle butter shit that was blessed by a shaman or some bullshit. They just, they just use a fucking salt and the butter, like <laughs> stop eating so much hyper palatable shit and you won't be begging for hyper palatable shit all the time. Uh, but oh, our job yeah. is really hard. I don't, like, I, I see people like that. Like I, and they often they don't get it. Like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a lawyer that works 400 hours a week or you're an investment banker that, you know, is, is, is mm. until 2 a.m. or cracking deals. How would you have the time for this food prep? But you can't cook and now no. you eight hours of cooking a day. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. No, man, you need good, man. I can cook my, that, those eggs I told you, the easiest way for me to cook eggs, I put, I just take butter and I just go over the pan before it's hot. I turn it on, I crack four eggs in it. I put a fucking glass top on it and I cook it real low. I go and take a shit. I go brush my teeth or do whatever I'm going to do. I go fucking pick up the dog shit in the backyard, whatever I'm going to do that morning. I go buy a check on it. Not nah, still going. I can go out and do everything I want while that's being cooked because it's cooking so slow. And then I'm almost assured it's never going to burn. because I hate burnt eggs. I cannot stand the bottom of them being any types of burn. And I need the yolks to be runny. So if you bake it like that, basically steam the eggs, it's almost foolproof unless you're a moron and the eggs come out perfect every time. The lunch I do, I've got an air fryer. Air fryer will cook perfect chicken thighs in 16 minutes. And all you have to do is put them in there, turn it on, flip it over when it's halfway through. That's it. So like, people need to understand you don't, you don't need a fucking go to cooking school, culinary school to figure out how to do this. Even, even my dinner, I, I always have steak 
have a salad with some uh, feta cheese. Um, and then I might have some rice or I might have a chocolate bar. And that's it, which is what I had tonight. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I've, I've been wanting an air fryer for a long time. Like, no one here cooks in Hong Kong. Like, when we had the COVID cases hit like 180, which is the most we've ever had, for one day, Carrie Lam closed the, um, all like the restaurants like completely. We had them closed for dinners for a while, but lunchtimes. And like, because no one cooked, there was just tons of people on the street just eating takeout food. Like, it was worse. Like, it's the super like, we don't, crazy. we don't have an oven. Most flats don't have an oven. It's the difficult thing here. It's, it's like, you, I've, 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 I've learned how to be resourceful more here than ever because no one cooks and no one, like, steps have to be purposeful here. Like, mm. I, I remember I was outside this uh, place called Landmark and there's this big, like, queue for taxis. And the, the taxis all come in and the people will get in a taxi or drive off. And instead of walking down to the second taxi, everyone waits for the taxi to arrive at their feet to walk in. How weird. Yeah. And this is when you say to someone, could you do 10,000 steps a day or could you just do whatever? A bit of cardio in, in the week. And they're like, yeah. that's like 12 hours of walking. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you have no concept of how long it takes to run a activity. But um moving sort of like into into some of the into some of the training stuff. And we spoke about jumping on this and talking a little bit about, you know, you've been known for the least most stuff and improving some of mm. the you know, you know, stress and mental states with regards to training and a lot of fat loss stuff with that. But for people that might not know if they're not in the program design course and on the back end and see all the good stuff you've done, some of the most impressive results you've come out um, at the moment is improving people's mobility, resting posture, getting people out of pain, you know, and before we go into some of the specifics with that, like for people, I always say that someone was telling me this yesterday. There is when you get to around about your early thirties, there's a point where, you know, just bodybuilding becomes sort of like a, you know, you start going into other elements. Like people start becoming osteos or they start, mm. start doing BJJ. And, you know, they always have an injury story or two that's sent them down this path. Like, what is it for you that got you more into looking at, like, movement? Because you were always known as a nutrition guy. Like, how have you become, like, you know, there? How's your journey to yeah. learning this? You know, it's it's funny. It's funny that, we, that I became the nutrition guy uh, because uh, people don't realize I was a competitive national level competitive powerlifter. I was I competed in strongman. I competed in bodybuilding and men's bikini, you know, men's physique. Uh, like I've I've done a lot. Uh, I've competed in martial arts stuff. Like I've done all of this high performance sports stuff, and everyone always comes to me to make them lose weight. It's like, fuck, man, I could make you an absolute fucking weapon. But we've, it's been in the last couple of years, we've actually got people coming in. It's like, I want to be a fucking assassin. Cool. I got you, bro. Like, there's, it, we've got so much other things, right? But um, with the movement and mobility stuff, it, it kind of came along um, when I left Polican Group. And uh, I was like, man, we're teaching all these people how to train professional athletes and none of them are training professional athletes. And if there's a really hardcore um, emphasis on maximal strength and I'm like, man, that's just like maximal strength is important, but it's important as a foundation for other sports develop sports um, quality. Uh, what am I looking for? The development of other sports qualities like speed and power and, and change of direction and agility and things like that. And I went, man, you know, the, the, I'm seeing a lot of the people that I'm dealing with, 
have really horrible movement issues. Like they can't, I'm, I'm done level one and level two animal flow. I try to teach a client how to do an animal flow position. They can't even get set up for it, man. This is really fucking bad. You know, like squatting, deadlifting, benching, all that stuff's cool, but fuck man, someone can't even get on and off the ground without having like 800 different points of contact trying to get up. There's something wrong with that. Like we need to start thinking about where we need to put what, what we need to put first, the horse or the cart. And I just got to the point where I realized strength is cool, but mobility and flexibility and the ability to control yourself in positions is probably the most important thing you can do from a locomotion standpoint. And um, because strength is stupidly easy. It's stupidly easy to get real fucking strong. You know, when I was a kid and I started training, I started training when I was like eight years old. That was back in 19. God, that was like a night. What is that? Eight, 1986. That's when I started like actually lifting and like lifting hard out for, for, you know, Texas football. And uh, it was super easy. Bench, squat, deadlift, go home, eat a lot, come back, add more weight to the bar, bench, squat, deadlift. Like getting really fucking strong is not rocket science, but getting really strong without creating a lot of fucked up shit in your body. That's the, that's the true art of how do I get real fucking strong, but not create an impingement in my shoulder, FAI in my hip, lower back compression and pain. Um, And I think we've lost sight of that because a lot of these different, a lot of these people who should be talking and change, uh, exchanging information on methods. They should be agreeing with each other that everyone's right in certain situations and everybody's wrong in certain situations. They've all decided, no, nah, we're just going to tell each other to fuck off and go our separate ways. So you got these, this side, all these powerlifters going, nah, just use less weight and squat with less weight. Find the weight you can squat at that you don't have any pain. And just keep squatting. I'm like, cool. Then you got these guys doing do all these sissy ass fucking rehab exercises, do a bunch of fucking open cans and fucking clam shells and just do that shit for fucking four years. And never feel better. Like somewhere between both of those sides is the truth. So that's where I've kind of headed off about six years ago. I, I went on this journey to find out what's the truth between both of these sides. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I had this when I was speaking to Tom Hibbert recently, this thing about like warmups. So people end up getting into these 40 minute warmups and, you know, hardly ever any time for their training. And, you know, it's, you never ever get any better. They never get any closer to yeah. it. Um, you know, do you feel like when it comes to, you obviously going into the strength stuff, you notice a lot of guys were, were tight, were having a lot of pain. Do you feel like, you know, what do you feel like causes or gets people into these sort of like bad starting positions? Do you feel it's just ego putting too much weight in the bar and just overloading themselves for years? Or do you, is there more to it in terms of what you see? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can think of it as you know the law of repetition of efforts. The law of repetition of efforts can build a skill in a positive direction or can build a skill in a negative direction. So I think part of it is a lot of it's ego lifting. A lot of it is maxing out all the time on the same shit. And just every time you do that, you shift a little bit further and further outside of your acceptable technique. And then you ingrain that motor pattern. And then that affects other things. And then the next thing you do, you wake up and you got chronic pain. And that's now how you squat because you can't, you can't deviate from that. Um, a lot of it is just improper, uh, not paying attention to um, muscular chains and how they affect each other. A lot of it is poor program design where it's just that the emphasis is too much on this one thing or this couple of things. 
and not looking at a global, I hate the word holistic, but it makes sense here, like a holistic global kind of thing of how these chains work together. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, not taking care of your conditioning and your blood pressure, not taking care of your sympathetic nervous system, not taking care of your electrolyte balance as far as like sodium, potassium, not taking care of uh, resting heart rate and sleep, inflammation. There's a lot of things here that can contribute to this. And all of these things could be a big contribution or they could be a really small contribution. But, you know, what I reckon, what I reckon for most people is that your ability to move is going to be dependent on where your joints can go. And if you've done things and pulled a bone outside of its normal position, you've reduced its capacity to move into certain ranges of motion. So then the body responds by limiting those ranges of motion and causing pain. And then that affects other areas. So for instance, um, when I was growing up in Texas, it was really common like it is in most countries that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were international bench press days. So everybody's bench, bench, bench and biceps, bench and biceps. So if you look at if you look at the shoulder, if I'm benching, 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 that's inherently going to pull the humerus forward. If I'm doing a lot of biceps, 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 that's going to shorten all this and it's going to pull it forward. So lo and behold, you go in after somebody's been doing this for five years and they look like a fucking watermelon farmer. So they look like they're just walking around with these two watermelons, right? Uh, and then they go, I can't bench anymore because it just destroys my shoulder. And by the way, I got this weird fucking hip pain and it's affecting my lower back. You're like, interesting. And it's like, yeah, my foot hurts too. It's like, okay, now it's a chicken or egg thing. And it's probably related to something they did here that then worked its way down. Uh, but the body's always going to move away from pain. And the absence of pain does not mean the absence of dysfunction. You could be moving away from pain that you're not cognizant, you don't have cognitive um, awareness of because the brain hasn't told you there's an issue because it's working around it. So you're looking at, I, I might be moving away from pain. I might be moving away from instability and chasing stability. I might be moving towards a position where I'm trying to find more space to move a bone. So there's a lot of different things that can contribute to that. When you're looking at obviously, obviously pain, obviously we have to look at pain in terms of you know, if someone comes in pain, if you can get someone out of pain, I think it's, it's you'll get a buy-in that you'll never get from anything, including getting them a six-pack and getting them a mm. shape in their life. And, um, you know, but when, it, when you're looking at pain, and certainly looking at pain science, it's very complex. Right? We love it, like, what's painful to you might not feel painful to me or vice versa. Yeah. You know, it's very subjective. Do you use pain other than just, to, other than just like, making the client happy and buying to the services? How much do you use pain as, a, like, part of your decision-making process or is it something that's sort of there, but I look at other stuff? Like how do you start to look at what's going on here? Well, yeah. I mean, if they say they're in pain, it's like, okay, have you, have you actually seen like physio or have you seen an osteo or something like that? What did they say? Okay. Um, and then I might give them a proper assessment and now I've got to determine where that's coming from. So what is the higher order thing that's now trickled down to causing this issue? What needs to be rectified? Um, to move them away from that pain state. But then you also have to look at it as far as like, there's other things this client has come to me for. So that might be losing weight. That might be putting on muscle. I also have to keep that in mind. Like, cool. I'm going to take you, I'm going to, I'm going to make you try to make you not have pain if you do what I tell you to do, but I have to integrate all of that in with a, a comprehensive program. That's also going to get them really fucking jacked and, and shredded because that's what they're actually coming to me for. So, yeah. So I, I look at, 
you know, where do you feel pain? Let's figure out what's causing it. So we're going to try to find out like if this is moved in this direction, what muscles could be contributing to that? How's the nervous system playing? What are you guarding? What's causing apprehension? Now we got to work up that chain. So let's say it's something in the ankle. We got to look at the hip. I'm looking at the hip. I got to look at the low back. I look at that. I got to look at rotation in the, in the upper body. There's a lot of stuff I have to look at when we're coming back from that and then finding big exercise that fix a lot of shit and not wasting time on a lot of little dinky ass uh, rehab, you know, traditional rehab or contemporary rehab stuff. So I, I'm looking at it as far as we got to get moving. So we need to look at what big movements, 80% of it needs to be big movements and 15 or 20% might be little sissy ass open can clamshell shit, bullshit stuff. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> when it comes to like what we're looking at, like what's actually possible. And I've, I've, I've deliberately thrown this question in there because I know on the uh, forums you mentioned that this annoys you. So this is, uh, this hopefully will give good content. But when you look, so we've got, we've, when we're looking at, movement capabilities now we tend to have two camps you mentioned sort of mentioned the two camps earlier on but we've got the um obviously the the pure strength guys you say it's do less weights or just sort of power through and mm. you know everyone everyone should have got a squat bench deadlift and then you're on the other side you've got the mechanics guys who i don't want to call out mechanics is great and physics is irrefutable but obviously with with any trend there's a lot of people that don't apply it particularly well that talk a lot about moving around dysfunction because they, you haven't got an x-ray. You can't see what the actual posture is. You can't see bone spurs. You know, like, what is your stance on that view and what do you feel is actually possible? What, what do you feel can be changed? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we, yeah, well, I might not be able to look at somebody's body, but, but we have pretty recognized degrees of range, uh, passive and active in certain body parts. We can also do some, um, we can do tolerance tests to see if they feel pain. When we do certain things, we've got manual muscle testing, um, which I still, I still do manual muscle testing mainly to see if one side versus the other is at a deficiency, but I use a electronic device. that actually tells me how many kilograms of force they're pushing with. So I, I've now gotten past that point of well, that feels stronger than that one. Now I can actually quantify it with this device. So that's that's changed a lot of things with me too. It's also changed a lot of things uh, that I was thinking about with, you know, people saying, well, you know, shoulder position doesn't matter if there's no pain, blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, cool. So I took myself and two other people and I used this, um, this muscle testing device, which can act, it's a, basically an electronic dynamometer. And I said, okay, let's, let's take a grip and let's just put the arm in neutral position and squeeze and see how much, uh, how many, uh, kilograms of force. Cool. Now let's protract the shoulder internally rotate and do it again. My grip was like 83 or 85 kilograms. And when I protracted it, internally rotated and try to do it again, it dropped by about 30 or 40 kilograms of force. Yeah. So think about think about how that's going to affect everything because those those nerves are, are traveling from the neck into the hand so if that position is affecting the hand it's also going to affect afferent signal back to the brain so possibly being in a position of protraction internal rotation can that affect your lifting is that going to fuck up your bench your overhead stuff well if it's if it's cutting down that that feedback back and forth probably so we what else did we do it was one of the big one I did. Um, ah, I did one where I did grip here, and then I did grip in a slightly flexed position and grip in an extended position. 
And if I went from here, 80, if I went from here, it dropped down to about 50. If I went down to here, it dropped down to around 23. So if you think about it, guys who are benching that are allowing their wrist to extend, they're fucking up. They're possibly fucking up that feedback from the neurons in the hand to the brain, giving it that proprioceptive signal. And also, when do people do this? When they're doing dumbbell or biceps curls or when they're doing curls and they're looking down at their arms. That's a big one Charles used to talk about is don't move, look straight ahead. Don't look down because you're going to actually make yourself weaker. When you test it, it shows that you actually make yourself weaker doing that. And how many people when deadlifting look up themselves at themselves in the mirror when they're learning to deadlift? Yeah. And you know what? And that changes lumbar position as well. Then you not including this stuff with the nervous system. I mean, the, the, the big thing with that is just there's not a lot of space in the back of your C-spine. So when you go like this and you have a massive weight, you're just ramming those facets together. Um, so you, Allie uh, Gilbert, now Weingroff, her, uh, her husband, Charlie Weingroff, which is who's one of the top uh, doctors of uh, physical therapy in the United States, is a fantastic video on this that shows, I think it's looking at a, a scan of someone who's lifting and they have nice neutral head position. They're tucked and slid back. And it shows what happens when they go into uh, lordosis and extension. And it just ramming the back of their uh, vertebra together. And he's got, I'll send it to you. It's, uh, it's fucking funny as yeah. shit. The way, the way he, could, he does the commentary on it is just fucking gold. That's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting personal to me as well. Because I think a lot of like, like I've got a bit of, bit of forehead posture. And I feel like that gives me a lot of issues. And like... So I, I've, I've done, a, you know, looked at this kind of thing a lot. And I, I, I for ages, I've spoken to you about this on consults, sort of like having this sort of like mid-thoracic spine pain underneath my shoulder blade. And like for a while, I was like, I couldn't place what was going on with this. I tried sorting out a lot of stuff with the hip and then that got better and it didn't go away. And I was like, what's going on? And as I started in the last few months, as my training's picked up again and gone a lot better, that I'm starting to realize there's a definite correlation between my head position. And I start to feel mm -hmm. now, now it's, it's much more precise of what causes the pain. Whereas before it was like random. Whereas now I'm like, if I do this and go into a neutral spine position, I just feel that pain go right down the middle of my spine. And I think like, like that probably has a lot to do with it. And like something I've, I, I've, I've looked at a little bit, I want the, good to get your advice on it now you brought it up. Like, have you noticed when you're looking at neck position and forward head posture and things like this, having a big effect on something like HRV? for that exact reason of the nervous system coming like through here and, you know, into that position. I don't know because I haven't measured it. Um, but I mean, anytime you're deviated, uh, if you look at all these people who say there's not a perfect posture, cool. I get that. There's not a perfect posture. Like we're not all Vitruvia, man, but there are acceptable and unacceptable deviations from what would be considered perfect posture. So, um, it's like saying there's no good foods and bad foods. Of course, the fuck is good food and bad food. Are you fucking kidding me? Like you're telling me a fucking Twinkie is a good compared to a fucking chicken, rice and broccoli. Of course, of course, that's fucking silly. Uh, there's not good and bad posture. Of course there is. You look at somebody who looks like goddamn Quasimodo and you say that their posture is that's just not it's not bad. It's uh, it's just not as good as yours. It's like, no, it's fucking horrendous. And they're going to be in pain and they're going to be fat, 40 years old. How are they going to feel when they're fucking 65? So <laughs> I would imagine, you know, if you have, if you have um, uh, massive deviations like this, 
there's going to be a pain response. It's just not to the point where your brain feels that it needs to bother you about it. Right? So mechanoreceptors, they're, they're like, okay, we got an issue here. Maybe there's no space or uh, maybe maybe I, they're pressing on something. So let's say that every time you lift this up, it's smacking into the supraspinatus. And now the supraspinatus tendon is starting to thicken up and you're losing subacromial space. And the mechanoreceptors are going to go, hey, there's a problem. They're talking to the brain and the brain's like, uh, yeah, we don't need to let uh, Luke know about this just yet. So what I want you to do is I want you to tighten this here. I want you to tighten this here and then lengthen these two guys. And then this will move forward. We, we can We can play with that for a while. But your body does this over and over until one day the brain goes, oh, fuck, we have nowhere else to go. Let Luke know there's a problem. So then you wake up one day and you go, what the fuck is that? That wasn't there yesterday. Holy, oh, fuck. And then you can't do anything. And a lot of people, I would say most people I see are moving towards that. And that can be easily rectified if we just take care of it. Like, if you're not in pain, that doesn't mean you're not heading that way. You want to take a prophylactic response because it's much easier to do it preventively than it is to do uh, retroactively. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And looking at my, my experiences, my upper back pain and issues that I've had, a lot of that was like when I first started training, it was like, and I'm not not bashing the guy, but it was like like old school bodybuilder workouts. What's the fundamental health? I used to do a Jamie Alderson workout, which started with 100 leg extensions and a few sets as possible into four sets of 20 back squats. Mm. Not a hamstring, not a glute exercise in sight. <laughs> like, so my pelvis came in a really bad position. This golf and then, you know, as we know, work up into the thoracic spine. And mm. now almost like I'm ticking off one problem, find another problem that comes and I'm just working my way through the chain. And in that exactly same sense, it's like, I remember speaking to Nick Daniel, um, you know, a good buddy of both of ours. And he was like, do you get back pain? I'm like, no. He's like, huh, surprising. And he just walked off. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's weird to Nick to finish a sentence that quickly. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is an understatement. <laughs> oh, he's not as bad as he used to be in his, in his, in his, in his, his, his mellow years anyway. Um, but like. And then you, know, you, you just take up the chin, you, and then eventually, you know, getting to late 20s, early 30s, I'm like, oh, this is starting to sound to hurt, and all my back pain starts. Yeah. And it, you get this with clients where it's like, they'll go, yeah, like, I'm a, I blew my lower back out. Well, what happened? Oh, I picked up a newspaper. I mean, that must have been a yeah. big fucking newspaper. You know, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's 5, 10, 15 years of this sort of, sort of stuff that causes those issues, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, look, it, what, what you're looking at is you're starting to lose space, lose space, lose space, lose space, and then you nick a nerve. You, you just pop a nerve. It just, just it's the slightest little chink, and your nerve goes, fuck you. I'm just going to seize up. And then your client's like, oh, oh, fuck. And they can't turn. They can't do anything. And then it stops spasming, and they're like, okay, cool. I'm good. And then they go do something else. And then all of a sudden, it's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And, like, and there's spaz, spaz, spaz. And then... And then it goes down. Um, so there's so many people that are on the verge of that. I never had back pain until I had fucking horrendous, like fucking horrible nuclear Holocaust back pain. And it, it it's I'm not going to say it came out of nowhere. I was avoiding some niggles, but they weren't they weren't such a pain in the ass that it was inhibiting me from doing things until I came down on on my foot wrong. And then, boom, I couldn't fucking walk. I couldn't crawl. I couldn't turn in bed. I had to piss in a cup and pour it in a bucket. 
Like there's so many people that are that close to one wrong move. This stuff can be easily avoided if we stop fucking ignoring it and just say, well, you can squat the pain away. No, you can't squat lighter. No, fix the fucking problem. Yeah. Don't put a plaster on it. Right. The, yeah. So before we go into sort of like some of the strategies we can potentially use to start getting people away from the, the danger zone that we're talking about, obviously you mentioned, like we both spoke about yourself, ignoring some niggles that weren't really affecting you. Me, ignoring clear issues in my posture because I wasn't experiencing any pain. Um, like, often when you see people speak about this with mechanics guys with yourself, it all comes from this. They, they, they did stuff like, you know, can't supinate, but I'm going to do straight bicep, straight bar bicep curls anyway because Arnie did them and then their elbows are jacked mm. up. Like, how do you get people, like, committed to improving, for use of a better term, their structural balance you know, when like some cause many issues now, why should I bother doing it? I'd rather do this. Like, how do you get people to feel value as important? Well, the first thing is I don't give them a fucking choice. <laughs> you want to, yeah, you look, you want to work with me? You're fucked up. Here you go. I'm going to, I'm going to show you proof of concept. Go into a split squat. Awesome. That looked like fucking garbage. You know, I can give them, I can give them indicator lifts. I can show them and they go, okay, that's us. Supposed to like, then they try to do it and they're like, yeah, it didn't look like the way you did it. And I'm like, that's right. So we're going to work on fucking achieving those things. And I look at it as uh, almost like leveling up in a video game. I'm a big World of Warcraft fan. I've been playing it since it started. And, um, you know, you start off as like a little fucking, you know, fucking gnome, you know, a little fucking gnome running around, gnome, mage or warlock, and you can't do shit. Like you got a fucking stick and like everything kills you. And so, you know, the whole goal is to do these quests and repeat things until you go to the next step, which is the next level where you throw fireballs or whatever the fuck you're doing, right? So for me, they don't get a fucking choice. You, you're paying me for my expertise. I'm telling you you're fucked up. I'm going to fix your fucked upness, right? At least I'm going to tell you how to fix it and you're going to fix it yourself. Um, and then we're going to move to level two mage and level three mage. And then when you move up those levels, I'll give you different exercises, but you're not getting bigger crazier exercises until you can you can hit the basics and hit the fundamental shit um another thing i do is i take pictures of them i'll take pictures and i'll draw plumb lines i'll draw plumb lines i'll draw angles and show them like put the pelvic tilt i'll show them a plumb line or where their ear shoulder uh middle of trachanter knee and ankle should be um, I'll show them from the front and back how deviated they are from where they should be. And realistically, the proof's in the pudding. They, they're going to see that and go, cool, my, the line is here and my head is here. There's obviously something fucked up I need to fix. Or they'll look at it from the side and like the line will be here and their head will be over here. And they'll look like, uh, I'll tell them, I'm like, you look, you look like you got the Michael Jackson lean. Like your fucking feet are back here and you're fucking leaned way over here. Like we got to fix that because the further you lean out, the more you have to rotate the hips and extend the lower back. To, and then all you're doing is creating a lot of compression and shear that's eventually going to give you debilitating lower back pain. If we can get your hips to rotate back and get your spine to move back into alignment, that's going to take a lot of that pain away. And that's going to fix everything from the hips all the way up. And most of the time, all the way down. So when you actually like looking at put this, unless someone comes to you with actual pain, you have to get mega mega specific. Do you, do you sort of look at sort of like use of a better term, 
almost hiding some of this. You mentioned the eighty percent here earlier on, like almost hiding some of this pre-prehabby sort of work in exercises, like positioning them in certain exercises to elicit that, whilst also improving the other goals you mentioned, whether that's improving getting jacked arms, getting jacked shoulders, or do you tend to be like, I want something really targeted in lower traps or something like that? I'm using that. Well, it's easy, right? Glutes, you know, so. Oh, did you did you ever do PICP? Um, not directly. I've done like it. it you know, I not directly. Versions but... of it, like Andre Benoit's equivalent. Yeah, and where you used to work. I mean, they basically run that model, right? So, if you think about it, most people who are listening to this that went through any type of polyquin training or, or were used to work, they're already kind of doing that anyways, right? So, if you think about it, if I do A one, A two, B one, B two. And let's say that's um, incline press and then maybe a lean away pull down. And maybe that's a uh, flat press with a seated cable row. So there's your 80%. And you might have a C1, C2. Your 20% might be external rotation and lower trap raise. Right? So a lot of people are already doing this. But the way I look at it, a lot of people are doing exercises that aren't as effective as they should be because their client isn't in a good position to make those exercises work. So I was actually thinking about this today because I'm going to do a video um, of how I teach people how to understand internal external rotation. So when you get a client who's doing internal external rotation, a lot of times they'll, they don't have the range. So they'll go like this and they'll go, they'll throw the shoulder and they'll throw it back. Okay. When I say internal external rotation, I just want the humerus to move. If your shoulder has to move, you don't own that range something we got to fix, but, um, and the same thing with the hips, you gotta, you gotta be able to teach what is actual internal external rotation, but if they are in a protracted position and they try to internally, externally rotate, you're not, you can't be in a protracted position and externally rotate. You can't get there. It's not going to happen. You can't be in a protracted position and do upper rotation or I mean, sorry, shoulder flexion. So if you have somebody who's got massive protraction, internal rotation, and you're giving them external rotation and lower trap raise, what the fuck are they supposed to do with that? Their shoulder's not in a position where they can actually do it. So then you tell them that they need to do this. <laughs> shove that fucking shoulder back, shove that scapula back, and then do your fucking, that would make a really good gift. Yeah. yeah whatever <laughs> they call. But like, they, you see it all the time. People are doing their single arm lower trap, and they're like, <sighs> like what the fuck are you doing you should that should be there naturally if you can't set that there naturally and just lift your arm well what the fuck are you doing it's like getting on a it's like getting on a row and doing this like doing that like you do that when you start but you should you should have that figured out later um you see all the time with coaches right where i i i i I cannot stand when i watch someone coach pull that and they're literally just like forcing their shoulder blades down so teach a client how to do that like rather than just like literally like pulling them into position like holding the track like you're now just touching the things you don't want to work to try and force them in the position where you want to rather than going yeah what is actually supposed to happen here let them build an awareness i'll tell you i'll be a devil i'll be devil's advocate on this um (laughs) did you go no i'm gonna I'm going to be devil's advocate. I feel like there is a time and place for that, but those trainers have no idea about that time and place. 
So um, I feel like sometimes when you have a really imbalanced body, you have to have a really imbalanced training program. So like, I'll tell you like Amanda that you see me post about on the forum where she was a massive guy, like that's the Quasimodo look. Like you couldn't get more excessive kyphosis forward head posture, forward shoulder position, protracted scapula. You couldn't get worse than her. Uh, we might do something where we actually do over accentuate T-spine extension, over overdo shoulder extension and depression, and then just work the humerus through that position while holding all of that nice metric position. Same thing with a pull down. We may actually overextend over depress, over retract, and just do this without moving anything else. But I'm using that for a very, very specific reason. It's realistically only applicable to someone with her condition. But like you said, a lot of these coaches make all of their clients train like that, whether they know why they're doing that or not. And it's not good because that's not how the shoulders are supposed to work. I suppose it's, it's also balancing it out in terms of like, in, in good program design is balancing out these things. Like if you're, you're putting someone in a certain position with something else, balancing something else out to allow it to move. Like for case of yeah. point, a lot of things at the moment is the, should should the scapula be locked, retracted and depressed when you look at things like pressing movements? And some people say, yes, it certainly should. Some people say, no, it certainly shouldn't. And like the way I've always thought about it, it's like, well, if I've got, if I'm trying to get the strongest bench possible and I've got 120 kilos or plus above, you know, above my chest, I'm, if I can get myself as stable as possible by locking down my shoulder blades, then that would be pretty advantageous. But I'm also not doing every exercise for the exact same thing. I will then yeah. what else goes in the program to allow the shoulder blade to move how it should to, to make sure that we don't end up with someone that's just locked down all the time and ended up having nickels. Like you said at the start, I'm not sure what the start of this podcast or before we got on, the answer's in the middle. Yeah, Everything. it's always in the middle. You've got you got two sides of every story, your side, my side, somewhere in the middle lies the truth. And so with, with the people who say that you don't want to set the scapula like that in a bench, I, I, I'll bet most of them have never had a decent bench. Like I can tell you, my best bench was around 218. And that's kilos, not pounds. So for the Americans, that's 480 or so. Right. So um you 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 that you're getting into a you're getting into a position of inhalation and dissolve a maneuver. The last thing you want to do is go into a position of exhalation and instability with weight that weighs more than most people squat. Like that's a terrible fucking idea. And, and furthermore, you're not really moving the bar far enough to worry about your scapula anyways, right? Because if you if you're if you're benching competition, you're going to be trying to posteriorly rotate your thorax as much as you can while trying to get as much T-spine extension and get kind of on your neck. And you're actually trying to get most of your back off the bench. You want to get it as high as, as you can, even to the point of putting a Coke can underneath your back. Um, so that your sternum and your zafu process is high enough where you don't have to move the bar very far. So if you think about it, if you're in this position, you're not moving the bar far enough to fucking worry about your scapula. <laughs> 
So who cares that you have your scapula set in depression and in retraction? Like that's a stupid fucking argument to me. Um, it's the same thing with, uh, with elevation and depression and uh, upward and downward rotation. Uh, if I'm, if I'm doing um, partial range side laterals, and I'm down here, I'm not even to a position where my scapula are involved anyways, not till I get right here. So who cares if someone wants to lock it down? But the minute I come up here, I better start moving the scapula because if I don't, I'm just going to be ramming that humerus right into the AC joint. Yeah. I think it's a problem with like social media becomes, in, in, certainly in this realm, everything becomes sound bites. So it's like, you know, everything has to be this way. It's like, well, if you look at this in context, in a program, we're looking at what, you know, like four to eight, nine exercises, like you can, you can do this, this way and this, because I've got this, here, mm. you know, and you know, that brings to be going on to sort of like the posture myths now. And like, when we're looking at with that, what's your view on the, on the trend of breath work at the moment? Because I think there's, there's no doubt the impact that the diaphragm has on allowing the rib cage to move, allowing the thoracic mm. to move. And again, allowing like external rotation doesn't happen if you can't move and extend that. But my, always my thing with this, is that you take so many breaths a day that it's like trying to be a one man pissing in the ocean, trying to make it yellow. Like yeah. how much of an impact you feel that we can change with breath work? How much does this play a part in your decision-making process with this? Almost zero. Hmm. Almost zero. Okay. I, you want me to teach you how to breathe? That's it. Look, I, and, and I, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to the breathing things. I just think they've gotten a little too out of control and they've gone to an extreme. Uh, I mean, fuck, I, 10 years ago, well, not 10 years ago, maybe like uh, six, seven years ago, I was into the Wim Hof stuff and I was into doing, um, you know, apnea breathing and box breathing. And, and I think those things are, are really important, but um, they're be they're getting to a point where they're getting out of control. And I was talking to Will Crozier about this, and uh, he was at at our gym in Brisbane, and we were hanging out. And you know, he's done a lot of the breathing stuff. Went to America, did a lot of breathing stuff. And he goes, "Look, that stuff works really good from a rehab perspective when you have a small person that's in pain." He goes, "I'm a big motherfucker, and I squat almost 400 kilos." That stuff works good until I put 400 fucking kilos on my back and then it doesn't work so good. And I'm like, I said, well, I guess instead of you breathing into a balloon, you should just breathe into like a hot, hot water bottle or some shit. Like, because that's kind of what he was alluding to are the systems where you're breathing into a straw or you're breathing into a balloon or you're moving a leg here or an arm here and you're pushing a leg into the wall. And I actually like a lot of that stuff, but it works well for gin pop. It works well for people who are weak. It doesn't work that great for people who are strong. So you need, you need other things to do. Um, probably the, the stuff that I will do with breathing. I like the idea of learning how to do a lot of deep bracing breaths where you are like in a quadruped position and then learning how to vacuum and then learning how to expand and then breathing against the expansion and the, the, what I like about that is when you look into the upper part of the lumbar, a lot of that's attached into the diaphragm. So if we can work on pulling on the diaphragm, it pulls those vertebral segments up, which can decompress the lower spine. So we might use it for something like that. Um, 
That will also be the effect of like, because there's a fascial attachment to the psoas as well, right? So we're talking about the, you look at the force coupling and allowing that psoas to regain sort of length, oh no, rather than over length, and just like use things off on the pelvis. So, well. yeah, so, well, so yeah, looking at where the, the psoas and also the QL come in and attach into the diaphragm and kind of in those top vertebral segments of the lumbar spine and thinking about breathing so that you cause that expansion that pulls that and it starts to relieve some of the nerves on the lower part of the lumbar spine in L4 and L5, which is where you're going to see a lot of the issues will be somewhere around L3, L4, L5 when you see like lumbar herniations. But what I find is that working on length tension and working on the brain as far as calming the brain down, um, utilizing things like PNF stretching, hard isometric stretching, isometric end range liftoffs, um, lengthened range lifts like split squats, pullovers, flies, um, looking at things like that of how can I reposition where my bones should be? Um, working on, for most people, posteriorly tilting their pelvis. When I look at, when I, when I get a client's photos in, the first thing I do is put the side pick up and I draw that plumb line. And then I've got a protractor app on my Mac. I draw lines from the ASIS to the PSIS and I make like a little triangle. And then I see what's the degree of variance there. Most of the people I see are like 20 to 30 degrees of fucking anterior pelvic rotation. That should be about five to 10. And so if you're, if your hips are rotated that much, it's basically putting you in front of your feet. You're doing this. So what does the spine have to do to counteract that? Well, it's going to have to extend the lower back. So you've got anterior rotation with a really hard extended lower back. Well, now that's pushing your spine that way. So what has to happen? Well, my my T-spine has to go into kyphosis to counterbalance that. And then what has to happen? Well, my head has to rotate and my neck has to go into more lordosis and forward head posture in order to keep my eyes on the horizon. So this is a whole chain reaction of shit that starts mainly at the hip. So if we can get control of the hip, we can control a lot of shit. Yeah, I, I yeah, that's that's, that's something the way I've looked at for years and looked at people like you say yourself and Hassan and John Shadow. Like a lot of that sort of stuff comes in. And it's like if you can get the hip in a good position, that often eases everything up. You know, certainly up yeah. the chain, but to a degree down the chain as well. Like you know, I, uh-huh. I, I like knee block people with knee pain. Okay, let's sort the hip first, then I'll look at the foot. If those two things can sort of sort yeah. out, you're not sitting in this internally rotated position all the time. Well, yeah, and there's like, uh, you think about what's happening when you're sitting. You've got a lot of lower lumbar compression. And when you start looking at some of these, these uh, muscular chains, I don't want to say fascial chains because people get really irritated when you say that. They either go, oh, yeah, fascial chains right on. Or they go, fascial chains, fuck that bullshit. So I'll just say muscular chains where you're causing – force coupling between um, between muscles for locomotion or stability or to create form closure in joints and things like that. So if you look at kind of that deep longitudinal line that runs from your, uh, like your erectors and your traps and then down through the sacrum and then across through the biceps femoris, a lot of sitting really fucks that up. So the minute you stand up and you go into interior pelvic rotation, your femurs are going to go into internal rotation, which puts that biceps femoris at a state of length. It can't actually rotate or externally rotate your tibia. So if that happens, you're going to have internal rotation of tibia and collapsing arches. 
And the next thing you know, every time you squat, your knees cave in, they can't recover, your fucking back hurts. There's a lot of shit that can happen just from sitting 12 hours a day that for your feet that you wouldn't even think about that. So yeah, everything can work from the hips up and definitely, and probably more importantly, hips down. I think as well, you, you mentioned that about the bicep morph being a state, state of length. And I think this is where um, you, you can change a lot of people's thinking in terms of like what's actually going on. I feel the word tightness is one of the most overused words and people chronically stretching for hours and hours. I, I did it with the, um, with a few of the guys I'm, I'm, I'm mentoring at the moment. I was like, right, I'm, I'm a prime example because my, my mass anterior top was just slowly sorting out, but I've never really been able to touch my toes. So I was like, I'm going to do a lot of experiments. Like, I'm not going to stretch a single hamstring. And I just did some hip thrusts. I just did some things to, like, get the hip flexor activated. And all of a sudden, like, I found that range. Um, and mm. then, I, then I did that horrible master release to get an extra few inches. Um, but, like, look at those things. Like, where's the, like, what's your thoughts on the people coming in with, like, the word tightness? So, what do you feel is actually going on when people feel a sensation of tight? Well, I mean, for me, their their body's searching for something, right? And most of the time, it's trying to find a stable place, a stable, safe area, because your body is inherently doesn't like pain. Like pain is really important. Imagine if you didn't have pain and you stepped on a fucking rusty nail and you didn't know it was in there, and then you got a bacterial infection and you got septic and you fucking died, right? So you know, you you you. It's not that you don't want to feel pain. It's just you want to feel the r- appropriate amount of pain, and you want to recognize what that pain means. Um, so when somebody feels a tight muscle, the first thing we have to distinguish is, okay, what is is it tight or is it taunt? Because those are two two very different things. And if we want to think about that, if we think tight, is it short, or taunt, is it long? Because the the treatment pattern and what we might do might be completely different. So a lot of people with tight hamstrings, I would say the vast majority of them, they're not tight. They're, they're tight because they're being pulled taunt. They're being pulled to a long lengthened state and they're having a hard time holding on. So it's going to make it feel like tight, even though that's not exactly what it is. So considering that your hips are rotated anteriorly, that takes your ischial tuberosity and moves it up this direction well, that's the origin of your semimembranosa tendinosis and your uh, biceps femoris longhead. And those are attached to biceps longheads attached to the fibula and the other two are attached to your tibia. So as your hips start to rotate, well, that's going to affect your shin and how it rotates and how your foot rotates and your ankle rotates. But as you rotate and pull the origin away from the insertion, that's pulling that into a state of length which then gets tight. It's like having a guitar and you're tuning your guitar and you keep tuning and you're like, ding, 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 bong, and it breaks. Like you just keep tightening and tightening and tightening. It's not functioning correctly. So in that situation, we think, okay, this needs to be shortened actually, but it's not in a good mechanical position to create force. So what we have to do is how do I put this muscle in a better resting position well, I've got to take the ischial tuberosity and bring it back towards its insertion points, which means I have to rotate the hip, which means the hamstring's not a great hip rotator. Um, a better hip rotator is the glute and the obliques. So if I can focus on my glutes and my obliques, I can rotate that back normally and naturally, and I can use my hamstrings to anchor it to the lower, lower limbs. Um, 
there's a man, there's a lot of shit going on, right? We may have got to look at the so as is the so as short or is it tight or taunt, you know, shorter, lengthen. What about the rec femme? You know, all these things can can pull um, the joints out of position. It could be satorious. If you look at the psoas, mm-hmm. going on back onto a little bit of the diaphragm stuff, we're looking at as tight or taunt. Would you look at ribcage position being the determining factor whether the, the psoas is actually tight or torn? If the ribcage is flared with that pelvic tilt, you probably find it's also an overly lengthened state. No, because I think the ribs follow the hips. So, and, and here's the thing. Um, is it the psoas that's pulling everything down or is it something else? That's the thing you got to think about. What's the best muscle? What's the muscle that has the greatest leverage to rotate your hips anteriorly? Rotate my hips anteriorly. Probably the rectus. Yeah. I would have thought, right? That's a good anchor point. That's a good anchor muscle. But this one has a more direct potential. It's a muscle no one ever gives any love to. You look at the sartorius. Nah, because that's a secondary hip flexor. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking. Iliacus. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean. Because you just think of this, you know, the psoas, right? You think hip flexor, everyone says psoas. But then you go, okay, well, you've got the psoas, satorius, secondary hip flexor. Rec fem is a powerful hip flexor. So you go through all of these and no one ever goes, what about the iliacus? Because it's attached to the inside of the hip and no one ever thinks about it, right? But it attaches in the same place so as does. So, and it holds on the entire hip. So if you see this anteriorly, especially anteriorly as an inflare, the best muscle that could be pulling that would be the iliacus. Because if the psoas was pulling on, on anything, it's going to be ripping your lower back. So that's the one that's going to be ripping the shit out of your lower back, but that's not the one that's going to be ripping on your hip. That makes a lot of sense because if you, if you look at the way that, the, you know, the, 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 the fiber orientation of the psoas, you're probably looking more of a lumbar stabilizer than it really is a hip flexor. And that would make much, much more sense looking at that. Yeah. That really interesting. Yeah. Well, that is its number one job is a lumbar stabilizer. And then the secondary jobs is as an extensor and a, a lumbar and a side flexor. Um, and, and possibly you might even think a little bit of rotation too, or stabilization or rotation, but man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pretty cool things I've been looking at lately with that type of thing and trying to think outside the box of what's really causing these problems. There's some stuff uh, in the neck. I was looking at some old Paul check stuff, um, about like the SCM obviously is a problem. And then the SCM is going to affect the left scap. You start looking at the scalenes. Then I started looking at the hyoid muscles, infra and superhyoid muscles in the, in the as, a, as neck flexors and also as their relation in the tongue. And it's like I started looking at that as, and I think Paul Chick might have said this at some point of looking at those hyoid muscles as kind of the psoas of the neck. And I started thinking about the occipitus as being the butt, the glutes of the skull. Right. Because if you have this issue where your head's rotating, uh, let's say you're losing flexion and you're starting to come into like forward head posture, you know, that you start thinking about what are the relationships of those small little muscles at the very top of the skull. And also, what's the what about the hyoid muscles that are coming through here and attached into the neck as pulling this down and also extending your head back and being able to keep normal position of the head? Now, I'm still junky. 
I'm still junky with it because I've only been thinking about this for the last three weeks, but it makes a lot of sense because everything's going to rotate. So, and, and, and everything pretty much rotates almost in the same way. So the hips rotate very similar to the glenohumeral joints. And that rotates very similar to how the head rotates on the axis, the atlas. That's really interesting. If you want, if you want, when you learn some of this stuff, if you want to get any pick for that stuff, I'm probably the, an absolute. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it's because because it was you know when certain things you start listening to things you go okay I'm I'm starting to see some of the issues that I have like for for a while um, so like I I always find that like every now and again I feel almost like I'm almost got like swollen glands and I'm like not ill though there's nothing going on here and I'm almost getting worried about it for a while but it almost literally like that like it, it feels like like that is incredibly tight all of a sudden around here and I also find that like if I again if I rotate back. That's where a lot of my upper back pain comes from. So I reckon, yeah. I reckon that I reckon there's a lot of there's a lot in that that could potentially be a lot of really cause some issues around my neck. So that's really interesting. Well, this will blow your mind. I because I train, I, I have a lot of clients with Hashimoto's, and I was talking to Amanda, which you've seen me post her online a lot, and Hashimoto's, and I think she's lost 30, 30 something kilos by now, and and we've been straightening her back. But her neck is still still there. We're still trying to fix that. It's gotten so much better, but there's it's got a, we got a long road. When I was going through this hyoid muscles, which I was basically researching it for her, there's a lot of thyroid muscles or the hyoid muscles in relation to the thyroid. And I'm thinking, okay, so when somebody has Hashimoto's and the brain starts sending out to, uh, more TSH in order to get the thyroid to create more thyroid hormones, what does the thyroid do? Well, it hypertrophies. Okay, well, if it's hypertrophying to the point where a doctor can palpate and tell that it's too big, what's that doing to the muscles that cross it? Is it possible that they're pulling those muscles to a state of length and destabilizing them? So I don't know. This is the type of shit that keeps me up at night. But it makes it makes sense that if that was dysfunctional and, and pushing on nerves or pushing on muscles and moving them in the places they weren't supposed to be or in the links they weren't supposed to be that could destabilize them. And if those, those neck flexors get destabilized, the SCM has to work harder. What does that do? Shortens, pulls you into forward head posture. That, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm with you on these things sort of like, keep me up. I'll, I'll, I'll be getting my anatomy after as soon as you finish this. I remember um, the one that always blew my mind. Um, and I was, I was speaking to this about Tom Hibbert. He came up with a solution. I wonder if you have an idea of it as well, that, um, I went to, have you done Be Activated, Douglas Hill? No, but I've done RPR, which yeah. is, it's like, it's like uh, Be Activated Light. Yeah, like incredibly, it was a really weird seminar because it was so ridiculously painful. Like you got to the end of it, I go, yeah. I'm so interested. I want it to continue, but I'm so fed up of being prodded in my diaphragm that I just want to go home. Um, yeah. There was this one guy that came in. And I generally would have thought it was a plant. Um, unless unless I saw this in my eyes and spoke to the guy. But he came in, he had um, glasses on, he was blind in one eye. And he got him up, and Doug's always managed to get right people, right people up for the right demonstrations. And he starts playing around with his serratus anterior, just like digging his thumb into his serratus anterior and around the rib cage and this sort of thing. And then he realized every time he'd go into his blind spot, he'd flinch. So he just slowly kept working, so he kept working there. And he got up and he went, I'm starting to feel see blurs in my, my eye. So he kept working, kept working, kept working. The next day, he came in without his glasses on. I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know? And like, 
uh, that that fuels like any knowledge I have on anatomy now is almost entirely fueled by that. I was just like, I want to know. Yeah. Eventually, I'll get Doctor Simon to ask him directly what's going on here and see if he knows. But like that, just like what? Yeah, that's weird. I don't know, man. I mean, you gotta wonder if that was a plant or whatever. But fuck, who knows? Um, I've seen some. I've seen some crazy shit. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a couple of Charles stories. Because the funny thing is, like, there a lot of the people that didn't know Charles um, talk a lot of shit about him. But the people who knew him and saw the shit would be like, I, you know, honestly, if I hadn't seen this in my with my eyes, I wouldn't have fucking believed it. So I remember one of the first biosigs that I was an assistant coach on. So this was back in probably two thousand, maybe two thousand nine. We were in Arizona. And so Charles was big in, in the muscle testing at that point. Not the muscle testing I teach you guys in, in program design, like not manual muscle testing, but muscle testing, like applied muscle testing, where you put something in the hand and then you test and see if it's you get strong or weak or whatever. So it's kind of some hoodoo voodoo shit, right? And he, at one point, he brought his testing kit and he tested a girl and said, oh, you're, um, you're deficient in zinc, right? And we're like, whatever. This is, I'm sitting in the back of the class with Derek Woodski. I'm like, well, that's crook of shit. And so he pulls out a vial of zinc and puts it on a Chapman reflex point on her sternum. And he tells her to take her hands and do this with them in front of her chest. Now, okay, if someone's like this, they're really strong. If you internally rotate that, you have no fucking strength. It, a child could move your hands apart. She does like this, and he takes his arm, and he puts it underneath her arms, and he lifts her off the table. And he's just holding her. She's like this. His arm's in here. He lifts her off the table. No one could hold that position. I don't care how fucking strong you are. You could be the world's strongest man. No way you could hold that position. But for some reason, he lifted her completely off the table and held her there. For four, good three or four seconds, and I uh, said, "Okay, you need zinc." And I was like, "What the fuck?" And uh, yeah, there was one time, and I hate to—I don't like telling the story much because it, I always sound like a fucking uh, like one of those guys, a uh, ghost whisperer type of weirdos, right? So it was me and Charles Andre and the rest of the class. And this is in Rhode Island. And Charles, Charles is telling a story about how like he's since he was a child, he's been on the pursuit of learning how to harness chi energy. And we're like, okay, chi energy, cool. Like, you know, chi gong and fucking tai chi shit. Cool. Dragon Ball Z, whatever. And so he's talking about this and how he's been to different countries, finding masters and things. And uh, you know, it's Charles telling a Charles story. And Andre looks at us and goes, no, it's true. Like he's, he's actually learned how to do this. And we're like, okay, he's paying Andre to just bullshit us. So they were telling us, they were telling us stories about how like somebody's doing pull-ups and, and they're like struggling and Charles touches them and puts chi energy into them. All of a sudden they just keep repping it out. Right. They're telling us like fantastic stories like this. And we're, like, we're all thinking they're full of shit. And so Charles goes here, I'll prove it to you. And he brings a guy out that couldn't have been more than maybe 175, 180 pounds. And he goes, all right, stand there and put your arm out. And he gets another guy about my size. This guy's like 225 pounds or so. He goes, I want you to, I want you to grab his arm and pull it down. 
So of course the guy's like this is doing a side lateral and the other guy pulls his arm down. No problem. Charles says, okay. So Charles grabs the guy's other wrist and holds on to it. He goes, pull his arm down now. And so the guy goes, uh, uh, and he couldn't pull his arm down. And Charles goes, hang from his arm. So the guy is great. And it picks his legs. He's hanging 225 pounds. He's hanging from the guy's arm. Charles lets go. And they both fall into the ground. And I went, that's it. I'm done. It's enough reality. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And uh, at that point, I knew that Charles said a lot of stuff that he was quite full of shit on, but there was a lot of shit he knew that uh, no one would ever fucking believe and he was spot on about it. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that sort of stuff's fascinating. It just it makes you, like, you ever get bogged down in sort of, like, the, the stuff that we learn and just about, like, you know, abs and squats and bicycles, and, like, realizing the, the possibilities in this sort of stuff. Like, it's something that I... When I first moved out here, I was like, I'm going to find some like really cool, interesting people. There's people doing Tai Chi with swords in the park here. You know, in, 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 you know, US, Australia, UK, that'd be a felony carrying a sword into Victoria. Yeah. Here is, you know, there's eight year old grandma doing this sort of stuff. And I was like, not, not, never done that. Not, not in the US because it's legal to carry a, a sword around in the US. So, or at least in Texas. Of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> like, why am I not surprised? But yeah, like you can, you can literally have a katana and two fucking six shooters on your waist walking down the street in Texas. No one can say a word to you. That's that's mental. Uh, we we could get on another. <laughs> we could get on another hour about gun laws in America. If you ever want to do a round two about something non-fitness related, just just say the word. I'll happily do it for hours about oh, that. Fuck yeah, yeah. My my fuck my yeah. path. My path to taking down Joe Rogan. I've got to not do more than just training stuff eventually. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, for sure, yeah, like that's the thing. I move out here. I was like, I'm going to try and learn some of this stuff. I've not really, I've not really like tipped the surface on it. But it's definitely being in this part of the world. I'm definitely going to learn some of the weird sort of stuff you sort of get with here. Right. Get to get more foot massages, find more Reiki, that sort of stuff. I thought it was cool, man. Um, I've only been in I've only been in Hong Kong one time, and um, it's not somewhere I could live. I couldn't live there. It's too crazy. It's too too loud and too wild. But man, it was a cool place to visit. Like walking through the markets and some of the restaurants there. Some of the best food I've ever had. Probably some of the best Asian food I've ever had. I went to this. I think it was a three Michelin star place. Um, so what happened was I did a I did a foundation seminar there, and uh, Zoe decided in the middle of us traveling i miss the dogs i'm going home so she changed her ticket went home so i was by myself for about a week in hong kong and i was like all right cool so i just went to like like michelin star restaurants and did all this cool shit so i was like right, that's all right but uh man I, I like hong kong um i went to what's the uh what's the electronics place you can get all the really it's like a it's like four or five level place. You can go buy like camera shit and electronics real cheap. I, I don't know the name of it, but there'd be, there's, there's loads of places around Causeway Bay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I wanted like, I wanted to get a DSLR to start doing like photography and they were like, oh, you got to go to this place. And I went in, it's like, he gets just so cheap. I'm like, who'd you, who'd you rob for that? Well, I don't care. I don't know. I'm here. Here's 200 bucks. Give me a, give me a fucking Canon D 80 or whatever. But uh, it's a mad contrast here as well. Like, you know, I, I always, when I looked at, um, I always judge a place, certainly in Europe, by the, the price of beer. 
whatever a point is tends to show the tax and shows what it is. Whereas here, mm. the tax is low, but it's, it's the rent's so astronomically high that you, if a mm. place is there is a restaurant, you'll probably get a beer for like what, three quid. If you go to you know somewhere that serves primarily alcohol, it'd be like 10, 11 pounds because they've got to make their rent for this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned food, and it's, 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 it's really interesting. Like food here is it's, it's the most varied you can ever get. You'll get swanky Michelin star restaurants, you'll get canteens that are Michelin star that we just do good steamed port buns. And I'll never forget, because I, I don't think Mr. Jordan Shallow will potentially agree with you on that food statement, because he came to, to, to Hong Kong and we did, he did his um, pre-skit level one with us. And one of, one, of, one of my mates loved this tiny little Thai restaurant called Little Thai Hut. And like, it's a point about yeah. close to my kitchen, which is like, it's like one person width, right? And he's a, he's a big dude. So the first, we, yeah. the first problem was trying to get this dude in through the door, which was, was a challenge in itself. And then we're like, we're going, you have A2, two eggs, which is the pack of like minced beef, couple of eggs, bit of chili, load of rice. Awesome. But no, he wanted two portions of the, um, the chicken with uh, chicken with rice. Um, and he's had a glass of water. And he still, he couldn't, he was, head, you know, his mind was blown that the, the, the water was warm and the chicken was cold. welcome to hong kong you know like yeah i don't know man i i mean i had all the meals out there were great like i here's the thing i love going when i go to a new country i like going to mcdonald's because there's always a different menu in every country and hong kong's got some wild ass shit they got like black buns with crazy shit on their menu so um i had mickey d's i think um i love pizza express a fucking british special Love Pizza Express. I got one in Hong Kong. I ate that place like twice. The only thing I don't like about Hong Kong is Chinese people are judgy as fuck. So I'd sit there. I go to Pizza Express and the lady come out and ask me what I want. And I'd order a pizza, order some breadsticks, order some wine. I'm eating, eating, eating. I get done. She comes back, gives me my bill. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not done yet. Can I get another, another one of those pizzas, some more breadsticks, some more wine. And she's like, oh, so much food <laughs> are, you, are you sure i'm like yeah she's like oh that's lots of calories i'm like yeah i'm a big motherfucker i'm like godzilla <laughs> bring my fucking bring my goddamn pizza man just it is but that, that's the only thing i found like they they don't understand how much like a big white dude can eat yeah um they um i, I never thought i'd miss british customer service I didn't think that was something I'd ever miss. But like we, it was here where you, that you, you people don't look at you. The change is thrown at you. You give them a note, they just throw money back at your face. You know, like, uh, do you find in, in, yeah. Do you find that in Hong Kong? You find that's the case? Yeah, they're, they're just. Okay. I, I think it's efficiency. I don't think they're trying to be rude. They're just trying to serve as many customers as humanly possible. So they just throw something at you. Go move. Well, look, I, but I want to. Where, where where do you miss uh, service from? Where, um, where do you live that you miss service? I mean, well, I, I, I tell you what, I think, I think, I think the, it's, I, I don't, never thought don't, don't, don't say the UK, don't say the UK, there no think, service there. I think the UK, ah. I think the UK is a perfect balance between if Hong Kong's miserable and just trying to get you out the door, American people are just like, it's seven o'clock in the morning, please don't try and make me have the nicest day in the world. Like this, this, this wonderful balance of I'm a bit miserable, but I'll be polite about it. That's that's where my okay, but, but, but okay, all right. Let, we got to dissect this. Okay, <laughs> all right. Because I'm a world traveler, and I know I, I know these. 
I tell you what, because America tipping culture, great service most of the time, not always, most of the time, because their paychecks are dependent on it. Fucking the UK service. What the fuck is that? Australia is even worse. Like you go to Australia, you go to Australia, you walk in, you go to the bar, order your food, you sit down, the server brings you your food, and that's all they do. Like they don't do anything. They don't refill your fucking cuffs. They don't ask you how your food is. Like none of that shit. Like Zoe, when we first started dating, she didn't understand the whole tipping thing until she came to America and she was like, God damn, like you finish, you finish a diet Coke and a server comes up and refills it for free. No questions asked. You fucking that. Yeah. They put the food down. The server comes out and goes, how was your meal? And you're like, you know, that was fantastic. Thank you. You go, you know, it wasn't that, that great. And they're like, okay, I'll talk to my manager. If I can give you a free dessert. The service that you get in America is so much different because of the tipping, uh, because the people want you to be happy. Man, you go overseas, they don't give a fuck because they're getting minimum wage, 25 bucks an hour. They don't give a shit if you like your meal or not. Oh, it drives me crazy. I think Dubai, Dubai is, is, is I went very recently, the interesting one was like, they're, they're almost halfway to America in that sense that they're trying to, but it's all about TripAdvisor. Like, you go to a restaurant and they're literally forcing you write a review and they're looking over you going, make sure you put my name. You know, I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. That, that, that was weird. But yeah, service is great. You know what? I don't think, I don't think I've ever had bad service in the Middle East. And I think it's a cultural thing. I think there's a pride in taking care of the people and that type of thing. Uh, and I've heard the same thing about Japan. Like people go to Japan, they're like, man, they're a crazy nice here. Like almost the point where it's over the top. But I find that the, I find the same in the Middle East. Whenever I go to Dubai or Kuwait, um, man, the service there is ridiculous. It's like they just, and you're not paying them extra. It's not like you're tipping them. They just take, they just, there's just an, an actual pride in my job. Like I'm a server. I'm gonna be the best motherfucking server in the whole wide world. And I'm your server today. And I'm like, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find the, uh, ta- the taxi drivers here in Hong Kong? Uh, I don't think I ever took a taxi. God, I mean, they, that, yeah. if, you, if you're an adrenaline junkie, you know, you to tell you what, you're holding on for dear life. The, the suspension isn't much yeah. there, and they're just, just, they just put their foot down. And half the well, time, they have no idea where they're going. Okay, so my, my, my experience with that is New York. You go to New York, it's the same thing, but they know exactly where they're going. But yeah. you're like, holy shit. But I like that because I like roller coasters and I like dangerous adrenaline stuff. So when I go to New York, I almost want to put my hands out the car like a roller coaster. I'm like, yeah, woo! Oh, shit, that's a garbage truck. <laughs> the, uh, in, in, it's, it's amazing how, like, you know, I, I wonder how some of these people became. And talk about pe- people being slightly rude in Hong Kong. I do think that taxi drivers will deliberately be a bit ignorant, pretend they don't know where, go- where they're going if you don't speak Cantonese sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I was in a, I came out of a bar once and I was like, I'm meeting um, Ellie's family at uh, the Peak Lookout restaurant, which is like on the peak, like the biggest tourist attraction really in Hong Kong other than the harbour, right? And so I, so I got in and I was like, can I go to the Peak Lookout restaurant? Huh? Peak Lookout restaurant. Shook his head. I went, Peak uh, Road. Where? where? On the peak. It's like, you couldn't have a more like a descriptive where to go. And then I started yeah. off. He hands me a phone with someone that speaks family better English going, driver doesn't understand. And I went through this whole rigmarole with her. He still dropped me a mile down the road. 
And it was just, I just think it was just like, apparently there's English ways to say the roads, there's Cantonese way to say the roads, and there's like English versions of the Cantonese ways to say the roads. All right. Well, again, I'm going to play, I'll play devil's advocate. How long have you been there? Uh, two years. That's plenty of time for you to get halfway through learning Cantonese and Mandarin. I, so, I do agree with you. Yeah. I, I'll tell you straight up, like, um, I firmly believe when you move to another country that you must assimilate into their society. So if I was Mexican, I came to America, I'd be doing my best to learn English. If I'm a Texan moving to Australia, I've learned easy learning curve, their lingo. It's pretty easy. You just drop the end off and add an O to everything and you're pretty sweet. But I've always been of the, the, um, uh, opinion that if I move to a country and I and it's English is my primary language, it's not theirs. I'm going to probably learn their culture and try to learn their language, right? And I think it's a for me, it's a, a matter of respect and and also easy getting through the through the uh, the community and, and being able to talk to them correctly in the way they understand. Um, one time when Zoe and I were we were traveling, I think we were going to um, I think we were going to Ireland. Uh, I can't remember where we had been. We, I think we had been in America doing seminars. We were going to the Irish Strength Institute. Yeah. But we ended up going through, I think, Norway. I think it was Norway. So we did a night in Norway. And I was like, well, if we're going to go a night, let's do like 24 hours so we can see, kind of see a little bit of Norway. So we flew in and uh, they lost my luggage. So I had no fucking clothes. So we had to go into we had to go into the city and and buy at least enough clothes, like a couple of outfits before we went to Ireland and I could buy some more shit. Um, so we went downtown. It was the weirdest thing ever. We went downtown. There were people everywhere. You could hear a fucking pen drop. And uh, I'm talking there were hundreds of people out and you could you you would you'd feel more comfortable whispering to somebody because your voice would carry so, so far. And uh, whenever I go to a country like that, I always read through uh, like uh, what's the happy planet or whatever the fuck it is. One of those, you know, one of those travel things I want to read about the the culture and what should I do and not do. And I don't want to offend anybody that type of shit. And one of the things that said about the, the Scandinavian countries is that if you're loud, like me, they automatically assume you're drunk and you don't want that. So I went to there. It's like, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to use my inside voice, like my very private, private voice. And we went downtown and it was like fucking ghost pin drop. So we, we go into this sports store and I hear this loud motherfucker just like, and it's an American accent. And Zoe goes, is that American or Canadian? I go, that's, that's Californian. And sure enough, the guy was a guy from California that had moved to Norway. And so we started talking to him and he was like, yeah, how's the how's the process of going to this country? He goes, that's pretty sweet, man. Like I got a job, this, that. He goes, you know, within the first two years, I have to learn how to speak their language goes, that's probably like the biggest hurdle uh, because that language is apparently hard as fuck. But I think that's the right thing to do, right? If you're going to immigrate into somebody's con- other country, then you need to abide by their laws and you need to abide by their culture and you need to abide by their language. Mm. I think it's, I, I, I picked up a little bit, it's a very, very difficult language to learn. You know, I think it's one of the things that's like, I've been a, 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 
we're deciding what we do over the next few years based off whether we can go home and see family yeah. who knows in this year like but if if, if if we extend for another year, like I'm going to actually like start doing some, some doing some lessons or something where I can actually actually learn it. So I'm at home, I get I'll get overwhelmed, yeah. and I just just no chance. I'll get distracted. Like going back to what we said at the start, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, it's a it's a hard, it's a hard fucking language, man, because you're one intonation off making somebody agreeable or them wanting to fucking stab you in the throat, right? So I'll tell you I'll tell you two two quick stories on that, like. Uh, one of my best friends, we've known each other since we were 19. Uh, she's Chinese, Chinese American. And uh, I would go over to have dinner with her family. And they were all um, either, either, you know, born in China or first, um, first generation Americans. And so we go to dinner and they'd all be sitting there and I'm like the big token white dude. And they're all like, you know, talking Chinese and shit. And I'm just like, yeah, cool. Like I was talking, you all motherfuckers all speak English. I don't speak uh, Mandarin, so I don't know why you guys are speaking Mandarin. And it's funny because they would all talk and they'd laugh and they'd look at me to try to include me into it. And they'd be like, ha 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 ha. And I'd be like, ha ha, motherfuckers. Yeah, you laughing at me? And then my friend was like, no, they're just, they're trying to include you in a conversation. I'm like, well, you could probably include me if you all spoke English. That would be real fucking easy. But I decided I was going to start I was going to try to learn how to speak Chinese. So I bought Pimsler, which this is 20 something years ago. So it was like a little fucking tape. You put in your cassette tape, you slide it in the thing. And I remember I was driving my truck and I was trying to repeat the words. And after about 15 minutes, I just ejected, take it, threw it out the fucking window. I was like, I'm never going to learn this shit. (laughs) (laughs) It could happen. But a good friend of mine who he used to own the largest sunglass company in America so he decided he was a designer and he decided he was going to go to China and he was going to figure out how to get sunglasses made. And so could not speak a lick of Chinese, flew over, got a got a fucking apartment and started trying to talk to the guys at the factories. And he taught himself how to how to speak Chinese. And at one point they asked him to speak in front of a high school uh, graduation. And so he was up there and he was speaking Chinese. And apparently at one point his intonation was just slightly off. And instead of saying something like, may you all be successful, he said something like, go suck your mom's goat ass or something. And some dude walks out of the back. He's like, oh, you can't say that. You cannot say that. He's like, what? He was like, look, nobody say anything. They're speechless. He was like, no, that's not why they're speechless. And they had to pull them off stage. (laughs) Yeah, like in Cantonese, it's, it's even tougher than Mandarin. It's like nine dialects. So the, yeah. the, the margin for error is huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. It, they should they should just be like a like a people who speak English and use like eighteen different words that mean the same fucking thing in different contexts, like there, there, and there, and where, and where, and you know, effect and effect, and it just yeah. makes it even even worse. Yeah, but I say like English isn't an easy language either. Like I don't, I'm quite glad that I learned that with all the things that was actually the same. Like well, my. My my other half is a is a, is a primary school teacher, and she she like uh, I never get I don't know what they do like in Australia or in, in the US, but here they there they teach phonics, so they, they spell out everything yeah. and uh, it's great until you have an accent. I remember them. She was talking about this these kids where she had to mark them that they were right, where she was trying to get them to spell fire, right? But rather mm. I R E because they're from Birmingham, they spelled it F I Y A because it, and technically in phonics is right because it's fire. Yeah. 
Yeah, and yeah. Like, I was like, okay, well, <laughs> this is this is a drawback here. And I, I think phonics must be an American thing because if you go to the UK, you go to Australia, they don't say fire like that, they say fire. Yeah. So it's like it technically it does sound like it would be spelt that way. Yeah, I, I don't I, I never used it at school. It's definitely a relatively new thing since since I you know, since I was at school well many years ago. Yeah. Um, like, I I've started to um started to speak that way where I'm starting to get lazy R's and yeah. uh, the longer I, the longer I spend over here and I actually went I went back to uh the US and somebody Zoe and I was in a taxi or an Uber and the guy asked me if I was from Australia and I'm like what the fuck <laughs> oh you know I, I get that when I go home I had I, I remember one time I was at university and I got speaking to um a guy from Warsaw which is not too far from my, my neck of the woods and I'm not I've never had a particularly thick black country accent but I left yeah. him off at the time because he goes, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, I was scared. You didn't sound like you because I just slipped in without knowing it back into it. I was like, you will always pet. I'm all sure. Come on, how are you doing? You know, and like, yeah. absolutely <laughs> Cool. So, I mean, I, I could I could, I could, could uh, chat and rant with you all night. I'll definitely look at some point, get you on for round two and maybe chat completely non-training stuff. But um, thank you very much for your time. For anyone who doesn't know where to find Luke, where can people find Luke? Um, you can find me at three Roma. Oh, never mind. Give me address out. Don't do that. Um, yeah. So muscle nerds underscore health on Instagram. If you like memes, um, and you won't bother me about business stuff, my Instagram is Luke Lehman, L-E-A-M-A-N, and that's purely a meme account. Um, and then on Facebook, obviously muscle nerds, but uh, fuck, nobody uses Facebook anymore. It's too too much discussion on facebook not enough just scrolling pictures so we don't actually use we don't have a fucking tiktok so don't ask i don't do stupid crazy dances and shit um yeah that's about it i mean if people want to inquire about coaching or education consoles mentorship stuff like that info at musclenerds.net which is also our web page so um we don't have the best web page in the world we're kind of working on it but it, it has enough information to find us and all that shit I can definitely vouch for the memes are good. You have a big knack of finding good memes every week. Oh, that's my uh, that's my next calling. If <laughs> Muscle Nerds doesn't work out, I'm gonna be I'm just gonna move into the professional meme lord uh, category and just do that. Yeah, I yeah, uh, I definitely 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 got a calling for it there. And <laughs> well, and I suppose the, the last thing a place where people can find you if they're local to your area is the gym. Are you guys still coming? Yeah, up? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, Inst- Institute of Physical Performance, and that is in uh, Banyo. So B A Y B A N Y O. So yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'll chat soon. Chat soon.